Welcome. This is the Modern Industrialist Podcast, the show where we talk about accelerating transformation in the Industry 4.0 era. Our goal with this series is to help spur adoption of technologies that are critical to industrial innovation by talking about the current trends and challenges that we're seeing in the space. My name is Jason Heeman. I'm the vertical lead for Industry 4.0 and IoT at TXI. All right. If you thought last episode had acronyms galore, when we talked about MXD, SESME, and IMEC, just wait. <laughs> Today we're talking about cybersecurity, and our guests are Dr. Michael Powell and Aslam Sharul. They work with the National Cybersecurity Center of Excellence. As a bit of a preamble, I want to get some context out for the conversation we're going to have today. The National Institute of Standards and Technology is a non-regulatory federal agency within the U.S. Department of Commerce. It's tasked with developing measurement standards and conducting research in measurement science. It's commonly referred to as NIST, N-I-S-T. The National Cybersecurity Center of Excellence is a government organization within NIST that builds and publicly shares solutions to cybersecurity problems faced by U.S. businesses. It's commonly referred to as the NCCOE. The NCCOE asks industry sector members about their cybersecurity problems and then selects issues to research and address. They form teams with representatives from cybersecurity technology companies, other federal agencies, and academia to experiment and then publish their findings in the form of guidance. You can think of it as recommended best practices. So, our guests today are Dr. Michael Powell from the NCCOE and one of his main collaborators, Aslam Sharul. Oslam works for MITRE, which is a private, not-for-profit company that works with a variety of U.S. government agencies in things ranging from aviation to defense, healthcare, homeland security, and of course, cybersecurity. One of the acronyms you'll hear Oslam refer to later in the episode is ZT, which is a concept known as zero trust. Oslam will explain it, but fundamentally, it's a modern security strategy based on the principle of requiring all users, whether in or outside organizations network, to be authenticated, authorized, and continuously validated. You'll hear more about that in our discussion. I'm really excited that we have the opportunity to bring this valuable content to you all today. But as a result, it is one of our longer episodes. After the interview, Turley and I will be back to share some of our observations and to do our regular segment, What Did We Ask Generative AI This Week? I really hope you enjoy it. I'm excited to introduce our guests for this week's episode. Joining us from the National Cybersecurity Center of Excellence, we have Dr. Michael Powell. We also have his collaborator, Aslam Sharul from MITRE, uh, who works on projects for the National Institute of Standards and Technology. Gentlemen, welcome. Thank you for having us. We're thrilled. This is this is really a treat for both Turley and I. Um, I think as a way of getting into the topics for today, uh, would you be so kind as to give our listeners some insight into what the National Cybersecurity Center of Excellence does? And I'm sure we'll be referring it to as the NCCOE uh, as we go through some of the topics today, but would love to better understand the organization um, and what their focus is. Absolutely. At the NCCOE, we bring, we adopt secure technologies collaborating with innovators to provide real-world standard-based cybersecurity that addresses real-world needs. What that means is we get products that are commercially available and we put them in our labs and we demonstrate how manufacturers or 
pretty much anybody on the ITOT side can improve their cybersecurity posture using these commercial off-the-shelf products. And when we have these people, their vendors that they donate their time and their expertise and also their equipment well, free of charge to be placed in one of our builds. And elaborate a little bit about that. We have roughly a little over 20 labs at NCCOE. And we're currently running, I would say about 52 projects right now. Also, and just speak a little bit more about manufacturing, what we've done in manufacturing. Our very first project was a NIST interagency report, NIST 8219, securing manufacturing industrial control systems using behavioral anomaly detection. <laughs> this right here, this we use four different vendors that participated in this build using behavioral anomaly, showing different techniques that any manufacturer can use to help improve their cybersecurity posture. Our next one, we, it was a NIST special publication, 1810, which is a two-part series, which is protecting information systems and system integrity in a Dutch control system environment. In this one, we had roughly eight, eight different vendors participating in this build. And mm -hmm. we focused more on just how to protect and detect exactly what it says. Then the one that we're currently working on, NIST Special Publication 1841, responding to and recovering from a cybersecurity attack. We're looking more at, okay, they're in your environment. What do you need to do to get them out of your environment and make sure that your environment is secure and you can bring it back up and running safely? And along with that, we've also um, expanded our work a little bit because since there are so many small manufacturers in America, I mean, roughly 90 plus percent, we, we have a manufacturing extension partnership at NIST that we, uh, and they assist different small manufacturers across the US, Puerto Rico and Guam. And so what we've done, we've started writing a list of white papers to help assist them with their cybersecurity posture. These, and since smaller manufacturers, they're on a budget. So it's best that we write something simplistic that way, because the same guy that probably works um, in the plant is probably their IT guy. Mm -hmm. So we write something short, straight to the point, and it's expensive for them to implement in their environment to help secure their environment. Our first one is security segmentation in a small manufacturing environment. And we're gonna to touch on that a little bit later. And our second one, the one that we're currently working on now, identity and access management. And especially now with a lot of people being bought out, you know, smaller manufacturers being bought out by different larger ones, we mm -hmm. have to make sure that their badges are uh, disabled or whatever access that they have previously they if it if it changes, make sure they don't have access uh, to that if if not needed. Um, and that that's a pretty much a I don't want to take up too much time on no, that. That's, but that's pretty much what we do here at NCCOE. I think it's a found uh, it's it's fantastic. It's it feels very pragmatic work. Uh, you know, I think cybersecurity world is not necessarily 
always represented that way uh, as as pragmatic. Uh, and this feels like the sort of the news you can use, uh, real, real useful content. Um, tell me a bit about uh, the relationship with NIST. Uh, I mean, NIST's purpose out in the world. I mean, I, I recognize that uh, you're you're doing partnership work with them. Um, but as a broad sense, where what what can our, our listeners go to NIST to get? Uh, where, where should they um, focus their attention on there? Um, I would say one of the biggest things to remember about NIST, we're non-regulatory. We do not, you know, we do not regulate anything like that. We write standards. All of our work is standard-based. And you can always reach out to one of us. And we're always happy to help you no matter what it may be. And like our focus is, uh, this focus is, I work in cybersecurity. That is where if you have any questions or anything we can do, we can come do site visits, assist you in any way to see if you're at where you need to be. And we can recommend how to get there. And just a reminder, everything that we do at NIST, all of our publications and everything are that are free of charge. So you can pretty much go anywhere and, and download it. Uh, interesting thing, though, I did actually find some of our publications. People were actually charging for them, <laughs> which is yes. <laughs> but if you just go to the NIST site and um, you can find just about anything you're looking for that we have published there. I just awesome. wanted to add uh, uh, on point there uh, to Michael's uh, summary. Uh, actually, NCCO is part of NIST. It's not a separate uh, organization, right? It is within NIST, part of a, uh, another huge, large lab. Uh, what is it called, Michael? Is it uh, information? No, uh, uh, the lab actually, the way, right, right. The way it goes, there's NIST. Then NIST goes to the Information Technology Laboratory. This is the department. Then it goes down to ACD. Which is, uh, and then it goes on to us, which is a different division of NIST as an NCCOE. Yeah, these and these big uh, sort of like uh, organizations like this, it it, it takes a, a a whiteboard the size of the room to diagram all of these yeah, things. There's no yes, doubt. Yes. You know, uh, so it's it's absolutely. appreciated. Hey, uh, uh, Patrick, uh, you mentioned earlier that uh, these are all practical work, right? And that's what I really love working for NCCOE because I came from industry. I joined MITRE just uh, a couple of years back. Uh, immediately, I was assigned to the NCCOE projects and I loved it coming from industry. I was looking for something that is practical uh, that can be used here and now. And therefore, uh, I highly recommend uh, to your audience to go and check out many of the NCCOE publications and they are of uh, uh, great value for, from an application perspective. Absolutely, that's uh, fantastic. So uh, let's talk a little bit about, um, you know, modern day remote work. We do a lot of this kind of digital transformation type uh, type work. Um, let's talk about some, some best practices, things that you all uh, are recommending uh, in the manufacturing organizations out there that sort of help improve their security posture and uh, deal with the fact that remote workforces are a reality of uh, of modern modern life uh, and how they how they manage that sort of like more sensitive data. Um, 
as I'm out, jump real quick on this one. First thing, if all possible, employ, uh, avoid using public Wi-Fi. Mm-hmm. You know, if possible, use like a personal hotspot or something like that. As you know, that's it's really not all that scary. And if you have to, try using a VPN or try using connections like RDP, HTTPS, or SSH. You know, and that will help out a lot. Second, I would say keep your data work on your work computers. Some people love using their own personal computers to, you know, just, oh, I'll work a little bit and I'll just transfer their own computer. It may not be as secure to have as many updates and what's required as your work computer does. So I highly recommend keeping things like that on your work computer. And um, example, say you're working at a coffee shop or something like that, and you're working on some sensitive information from the coffee shop, you're waiting for your kid to finish the soccer game or what be it. I mean, it is a common practice. You can see a lot of people doing that now. You have to be really careful of somebody looking over your shoulder, you know, seeing your information or something like that um, and seeing exactly what you're doing or watching your keystrokes when you log in. They just say you get up and go to the bathroom, then they can go right into your computer, install a USB in, and next thing you know, you have some type of malware in your computer. Mm-hmm. Um, and as long did you want to elaborate a little bit? Yeah, more? yeah, I'll add a couple of uh, points there. So sometimes what happens is for to support the remote uh, workforce, companies just implement their remote access solutions, kind of a standalone, you know, uh, VPN kind of uh, solutions. But uh, uh, those standalone solutions often doesn't feed into the monitoring platform from a security perspective. So one of the strategies, which is quite uh, um, becoming popular now, the zero trust strategy, which essentially means that you assume that the adversary is inside your uh, perimeter or in the sense of your network perimeter, including remote access. So if that is the case, you have to think, how do we ensure such access don't get into our uh, access to our resources, data, or other uh, systems or applications, right? So the remote access solution should be an integral part of the zero trust strategy, meaning they should think about how does the remote access platform feed into our monitoring solutions and into any enforcement solutions from a holistic perspective, not a piecemeal solutions. That is something uh, that needs to be considered. In addition to that, I also would uh, uh, recommend uh, enforcing multi-factor authentication. These days, that's very easy to do. It's uh, the cost uh, point per endpoint has come down drastically. And I don't think, I don't see any reason why even a small manufacturers or any customers should not implement a multi-factor authentication uh, solution and that can bring down the risk tremendously. Over. Yeah, I think I often talk about cybersecurity very much so like the the onion metaphor is is this is all about layers uh, and we um, even though some of these things might seem redundant if you're modeling a, a sort of single threat model, um, I, I like the 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 notions of zero trust. Although I don't I don't know that we're gonna go you know full-fledged explaining all, all the details there, but the, the, the idea basically, basically being like, 
look, we don't perfectly model everything. And, uh, and so assume that one of your assumptions doesn't hold true and the, the layers or the, the different, uh, sort of portions of your strategy, um, all support one another, uh, in a, in a nice complex way. So, yeah, you, uh, you bring up a very, you bring up a very good point. You said multiple layers of, uh, uh, risk mitigation strategy, right? And that's mm -hmm. a well-proven approach for cyber risk mitigation. It's now well known as a defense in depth. And that has been in practice for almost uh, more than a decade and a half. Right? So now you add the zero trust approach to the defense in depth uh, strategy, and then you, you get a very solid, robust uh, cyber risk mitigation approaches. So I think uh, that makes sense. Yeah, I also I also like the, the, the bit that you're sort of pointing out here is that we've moved um, forward quite a lot in the in the industry and some of these things that used to seem like they were only accessible to large enterprises having access to a VPN for example uh, multi-factor authentication these things are actually quite easy to acquire and are inexpensive for even the small manufacturing companies to adopt uh, and I think that's for me that that might be a nice aha for some of our listeners absolutely now you, you bring up a very good point and to add to that, a cybersecurity solution that does not factor in the economic aspect of the company, it's not really a solution for the end user, right? Because they can't, I mean, let's face it, cyber risk is a risk mitigation function. It doesn't add, uh, increase the top line. It doesn't increase the bottom line. So companies will invest in cyber security solutions only if, Absolutely, they need to invest, right? It's a risk mitigation function. So the cost aspect you mentioned is absolutely an important uh, consideration uh, in any cybersecurity solutions. And just a reminder, too, when you're allowing people to work remotely, you're increasing your attack surface. So you need to verify all your, you open yourself up to ransomware, anything, uh, you know, anything of that nature. That makes that makes a ton of sense. And I, I appreciate that we've kind of like come into this conversation with a remote work um, entry point that I think a lot of us can connect to. Um, and I think that attack surface concept is really interesting as it relates to manufacturing, uh, the growth of smart manufacturing techniques. So if we could talk a little bit about the risks inherent in some of these trends towards increasing the number of connected devices in a manufacturing environment and the implication that has for manufacturers thinking about their cybersecurity practices uh, and how to kind of maintain um, a strong posture. So I think this is a very interesting topic personally for me because a lot of uh, emerging technologies have come into manufacturing. And two of the big one is industry 4.0 uh, will unpack what it really means. And then also the cloud. Uh, traditionally, the whole industrial control system side has been isolated from the IT world, uh, sort of a no, quote and unquote air gap, but that's no more true. There's a convergence of IT and OT network is happening. They are interconnected for various business reasons. Uh, plus the new technology, what is called Industry 4.0, which essentially meaning there will be an industrial IoT platform uh, where a lot of the data from the manufacturing floor will be fed into and then 
whoever wants to consume those data and the insight from that platform can access it in an open uh, 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 in an open uh, system perspective, meaning uh, just API with some additional credentials, uh, those kind of exposure, right? So what's happening is uh, some of the end from an industry 4.0, the endpoints, many of the industrial IoT endpoint technologies, there, in order to get to the market, first come advantage, right? Uh, the security aspect is not baked into the design of those uh, industrial IoT endpoints. So a lot of companies have pushed their products into the market without a holistic uh, uh, design from a cybersecurity well, perspective. Well, and, and, and Islam, I, I, I'm going to have to step on your toes on this one. I, I mean, some of the manufacturers we uh, are working with currently, uh, a lot of them now are starting to move, of course, a lot of legacy equipment. They did not focus on cyber security. But now you have your, um, oh my goodness, I might draw a blank. Some of your uh, HMIs and technology and stuff like that, that we have, they are starting to focus more on cybersecurity, like your Cisco's and other manufacturers starting to look at cybersecurity also when they're implementing their uh, product. But yes, that's a reminder though, when they, when you do have them and you do implement in your environment, a lot of them have like a basic password to get into it if needed. You always have to make sure that you go and you change that password. So there's no back door to get any of your equipment. I'm, I'm sorry, Islam, go ahead. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah, that that is very much true. Uh, I agree uh, that you know, uh, these manufacturers trying to look from a uh, uh, perspective of you know, is it really secure? What I'm what I was talking is the uh, not the uh, manufacturing industry who uses these products. I'm talking the one who uh, produces the industrial IoT endpoints, right? So they have been baked some of the cybersecurity capabilities. For example. Every industrial IoT endpoint should have a root of trust and a secure boot capabilities and endpoint identity aspect and crypto cryptographic services. All of these are the basic minimum uh, security capabilities required in a, a industrial IoT endpoints. So uh, now does all of the endpoints out there have this? No, not yet. The good thing is I want to refer your uh, audiences to a very good publication by Industrial IoT Consortium. Uh, they have put together a sec Industrial IoT Security Reference Architecture. It's a very good document, uh, very well thought out. It has been out in the market probably five years now, and they have uh, revised uh, their earlier versions. So it's an excellent document to uh, for education purpose, as well as some of the capabilities required for the Industrial IoT. Now. The other thing Michael brought up was the, the legacy system, right? Let's say you have an industrial IoT platform. How does that talk to the endpoints? Now, there is a new endpoints you'll be bringing, but many times uh, the reason customers are bringing this industrial IoT is for analytics purpose, edge analytics, as well as predictive uh, maintenance uh, and monitoring aspect. So those are some of the uh, historical data analysis 
So those are some of the key successful use cases that has been implemented using industrial IoT. Now, uh, the question is, how do you collect the data from the legacy endpoints? So there, you will have to have some kind of an industrial IoT gateway that protects those endpoints and at the same time integrates with the industrial IoT platform. So a lot of those considerations need to be factored in when we talk about industry 4.0, how do we move towards that? And one of the work I did a work for a, uh, uh, one of the big three automakers many years back, uh, around five, five years back roughly, and they were struggling. This is a well-funded auto manufacturers, now the Detroit ones, and they themselves were struggling. How do we integrate the industrial IoT uh, uh, aspect with the legacy uh, OT infrastructure, right? So the way uh, I would approach that is take each use cases because there's not a universal integration approach for the for these two uh, uh, ecosystem to come together. So you need to understand what are the use cases uh, that they are going to implement and then look at the data flow that is coming out of because of those use cases and then think from a security perspective in order to protect those transactions what security capabilities I need to implement. So use case by use case approach. That is the direction I would direct your listeners to consider in case if they are trying to go in the industrial IoT direction or industry 4.0 direction. That's great. Yeah. And we'll make sure that we, we link to that uh, paper in the, in the show notes uh, that you referenced, Aslam. Uh, just go back to where we started this conversation as we're getting to some of the practicalities of the different things manufacturers need to be considering as they're putting these systems together. Uh, Dr. Powell, Aslam, isn't that really the part of the purpose of, of your lab? When you reference the lab and the thing that you're testing, you're trying out some of these protocols. You're looking for these off-the-shelf solutions. You're trying to figure out what pieces you need to put together or what best practices would be for these manufacturers in terms of putting solutions together uh, that will allow them to maintain a strong security posture in a environment where they are trying to connect more and more aspects of their operations. Is that a fair kind of way of summarizing it? Absolutely. That is correct. And we, our guides are written into, we have a volume A, volume B, and a volume C. Mm -hmm. A volume A is a high level or executive level. Okay, here's the problem. You know, here's what we're, and here's some, some solutions to solve it. And here are the people that participated in it. Volume B goes a little bit more in depth as far as, um, Okay, here's the scenario, the use case we ran. Okay, you had an adversary in your environment. What did we use and what equipment did we use to get them out of the environment? And how did we make sure that our environment was secure and there's nothing, no zero there, anything like that left behind in there completely and out of it and to make sure like a lessons type learn how we do it again. Then we have a volume C, which is a step-by-step of how we put the vendor equipment and the connective vendor equipment into our architecture, how it was used, and pretty much this is very extensive. So, you know, only real techie persons are going to read that one, but it's very thorough on how we done everything. And also what we do is just a reminder, all of our work is open. Anyone can look at our documentation, what we're doing, how we're doing it. And then once we're finished, we have a 45 day comment period 
that we push out to the public so everyone can provide their feedback and make sure that pedigree is there. And if they have any questions or anything like that, we go through all the comments, we adjudicate the comments and resp respond to them either, yeah, you are right. Then we'll go back if needed and do that scenario again and fix that. And if we disagree, we'll say why we disagree and how we come to our conclusion. Love it. Uh, I was going to ask, um, I, I think some of this is, it feels very uh, abstract and academic and, uh, and, it, and it is uh, in many ways. Maybe you all could share uh, some examples of cybersecurity incidents or something like that, that you've learned particular lessons from in the past that might be, uh, might help, you know, set this in concrete for some of our, our, uh, our listeners. Um. As I'm, did you want to go first? This one, I can go first. I would just, I'll do a real quick one because I don't want to keep talking too much. But <laughs> we have one of the biggest ones that, and it's very popular now. Ransomware attacks. I mean, they're everywhere, and they're with AI. They're becoming more sophisticated and all that. And one of the ones that was known in North America is the Colonial Pipelines. Even though that was not an OT attack, that was an IT attack, and the uh, and the, the adversaries, it was kind of a win-win for them. One, they have all your data and they have control of all your data. Two, you're going to pay them money to get back the data that they have. And more than likely, they've already went through all your data. And so they know already know what's going on there. Then that right there created a panic all on Northeast. Everybody was running and buying gas. Gas prices shot up and it was, it was pretty bad. It's like it, it's relatively severe uh, and um, it, it, patching those little gaps could have uh, made a really tangible impact in lots of folks' lives, uh, I think is the is the takeaway. Is it, it stretches even further than just, we're not talking about necessarily profits every single time. It's uh, it's consumer and customer sentiment and various other things that, that translated the impact of I will add a couple of more uh, details to this particular case uh, that Michael already summarized well. Um, so the colonial pipeline case is interesting and uh, also similar to many other cases, which I'll come back uh, uh, after adding this, uh, some insight here, which recently I met a senior VP from Colonial uh, uh, in a conference. So I just want wanted to get a bit more insight into what really uh, happened. Even though we know uh, they published a lot of details and we have to give credit to Colonial Pipeline for helping the industry, right? Many people, when the attack happens, they just close, no information uh, outside. And I really salute the leadership of Colonial Pipeline <clears throat> for disclosing the whole, the whole details uh, of what happened, when happened, and all the, uh, those kind of information to the public. And everybody benefited from that. So even though they shut down the whole pipeline, the actual attack did not um, uh, impact the industrial control system side. What really happened was the, their identity and, identity and authentication infrastructure, that was, um, um, that was attacked. And uh, so that was in fact infected. And because of that, uh, they could not with confidence use some of the applications from their uh, cash to uh, invoice uh, or uh, invoice to cash applications. Mm -hmm. So without that, 
including uh, some of the billing systems, they cannot, uh, with proof, uh, uh, bill the customer and get paid for what they sold. So that was a complete impact to the overall business revenue side, right? And it doesn't make sense if you cannot charge the customer and keep giving out the uh, product. And that's why they decided from a business perspective uh, to shut down the operation. Uh, the actual plant was not impacted, really speaking, right? Now, there's an interesting uh, uh, point I want to bring up on this particular uh, incident, which has a generic uh, import, and that is, Often, even when we say we need to protect the industrial control system side or a plant side, we don't look from an overall mission perspective. Okay, So they look at, okay, we can't operate, so what are the uh, risks in the plant side? But it, in my opinion, that is not enough. You have to really chart out, uh, ultimately, what impacts your business operation or business mission and identify the key assets, which is generally called high value assets, right? You have to identify high value assets. Now that are mandatorily absolutely required for the business operation. Sometimes you'll find these high value assets are not just in the OT side or operational technology side. They're also located in the IT side. Just in the case of colonial pipeline, sometimes it could be IT infrastructure, Sometimes it could be building systems, for example, right? So you have to really chart out, starting from the mission, which are the IT system, which are the OT systems are absolutely required to keep the business operating. And then for the highly uh, high value assets, they want to make sure uh, uh, it is protected even more than the other assets. So that's some of the uh, insights I would like to uh, share. And if you have the time and the years to for one more actual incident, I am all for it. Let me know. <laughs> so one of the interesting and a transformative attack happened, uh, the uh, Ukraine industrial uh, attack in 2016, or it's also called the crash uh, override. Uh, because it is not just a one time attack. They actually created a whole framework for attack. So anybody can get those uh, industrial framework and reuse. Now that has become a platform now, right? So it's like a software as a service applications. You can subscribe to these platforms and then you have the whole capability uh, to uh, launch cyber attacks. So uh, very interesting um, uh, uh, framework. Uh, and there they brought down the whole uh, substation and uh, impacting approximately 250,000 households. So this particular uh, industrial that framework and the uh, attackers who launched this, they could control the uh, circuit breaker in the electric distribution system. And they also put in a couple of backdoors in that framework so that they could uh, uh, do a command and control and in also install additional malware malwares as required you know, as they progress through the attack chain. So that is uh, uh, another interesting, uh, I think, a landmark uh, attack, which uh, transformed from an individual attack to a completely, completely platform-based, uh, framework-based cyber attacks. Dr. Powell, we heard you mention at the start of those two stories about um, 
uh, real world instance, the role of AI and making some of these threats more serious, harder to manage. Um, is AI the trend that we should be on the lookout for most in terms of threats on the horizon or, or what else uh, are things that we should be looking forward or looking for as we evaluate the, the landscape here? I would be I would be safe to say that AI is the new buzzword right now. It's what everybody's looking at now. You hear it on the news. There's no way you can get around it. I mean, even some companies out there are using AI. I mean, it has its pros. I mean, for one, you're using AI to, you know, the adversary can use it to develop smart malware and attacks by to bypass late security protocols mm-hmm. and controlling data. So it's helping them figure out, AI is helping them figure out, okay, what do I need to do this? I mean, it's doing a seconds what it would take humans to do, I mean, months, if not longer to do. But on, on the flip side, it's helping, you know, the good guys as far as, you know, with they build automated security and develop automatic, like a threat detection to help them in security or cybersecurity posture and some vendors now are using AI in their equipment to look for vulnerabilities in their system, anything like that, and help patch that up. Awesome. Uh, what about what are you? What do you see as the, the sort of big changes in the landscape in cybersecurity in the recent years? Yeah, definitely. You know, I agree with Michael. There's a lot of uh, work is happening. Also, some hype is as well there, right? I recently attended a conference. A lot of papers. Uh, published or presented there was applying the ML uh, machine learning slash AI to cybersecurity. Now, one of the uh, important area, I think there's a lot of value uh, in applying AI is reducing the time for detecting a a, a attack, right? So often we know they are in the environment for uh, days, weeks, and months, in some cases, six months, all right? Uh, before they even launch you know, any reconnaissance. They just sit there, observe, collect the data, pass it back. So AI can literally bring down that time of detection from weeks and days to minutes, uh, maybe hours. Right? And that's a tremendous impact AI can have on the threat detection side. Um, a clear winner there. And one of the things we have to keep in mind is, as the AI technology stands today, uh, it is still will get you the ballpark where you need a deterministic response or answer. AI is not there. It may get there sometime, but it is it'll get you into the ballpark region of any analysis or a detection. So that's where I think the value of ML, ML and AI shines at the current juncture. And also, let's not forget about uh, ZT. One of the papers we produced, we went security segmentation in an OT environment, and it's close to ZT, but you still have to figure out as far as legacy equipment, how the best way to secure it, because as you know, in a manufacturing environment, everything is about timing. In a little bit of time change, it could take your whole plant down. Uh, Azram, did you want to elaborate a little bit more on the um, security segmentation portion? Uh, sure. So, and I think we touched on the zero trust uh, in the beginning of our 
conversation. Uh, as you know, zero trust is really hot. Uh, there's an executive order pushing for zero trust implementation and the strategy implementation, uh, mainly for a federal, but also it's a private uh, uh, um, industry collaboration as well. So security segmentation is one of the key components of implementing zero trust. Of course, identity and access management is one of the another important capability, but segmentation, whether micro segmentation or macro segmentation is required for the IT solutions, uh, the NIST 800-207, which is the uh, NIST publication for zero trust architecture that gives a couple of models for the implementing zero trust architecture, right? So for IT, the preferred model is every system, every machine, every application should have a micro-segmented perimeter, right? Now, it's possible to do that for IT assets, but it is not possible to do that for the OT assets because uh, OT assets does not support uh, the uh, individual asset-based endpoint detection uh, option. You cannot deploy an EDR into a PLC. Similarly, you cannot deploy an EDR to an RTU. Yeah, without that kind of a solution, you cannot implement micro-segmentation. So for the OT, the industrial control system, the preferred approach uh, for implementing zero trust is macro-segmentation. So our paper, which uh, uh, NCCOE uh, uh, sponsored, and uh, Michael Power is the principal investigator for that, uh, is do a macro-segmentation for the uh, manufacturing plants. So in a sense, you identify assets that require higher level protection and group them and similarly, you know, I classify them based on the risk uh, uh, profiles, and then you group them as enclaves or security zones. And now this is called macro segmentation. And our paper that uh, we published called Security Segmentation in a Small Manufacturing Environment talks about this uh, in length. And I think it's a, this paper has been received widely by industries, has been presented into four or five conferences. And it's a very simple uh, uh, approach that even the plant uh, managers or plant engineers can use to guide their implementation. You don't need a real uh, expert to understand uh, this one, right? this approach. It, it feels like uh, this goes back to the word that my, my favorite word of the day, which is it's, it's pragmatism you know, defined. It's, it's let's come up with a segmentation model that, that, that works with what we have and, and can grow with us. Um, and, and, and help us to move forward, but actually just, just thinking about and codifying those, those boundaries. Uh, does that sound about right? Absolutely. Bingo, you hit the nail on the head. And that's what I love about NCCOE work. They're looking into how do we scale the cybersecurity journey here and now, okay, not five years from now, right? And that's what I love these NCCOE papers. Awesome. Uh, that, it, it, it reminds me of when I was... Um, I think I was actually in, still in high school. I was doing some work uh, with the head of security at the local university that I was working on. I remember this quote he uh, he said to me. He said uh, he said, "Look, Patrick, uh, if you want something that's that's you know wildly secure, the best the, and most secure thing is to not have software running uh, ever." And I remember that thinking. I'm sure he's he's absolutely right, but it seems. Um, draconic 
to 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 reduce everything to that level. It's not it's not going to not going to function if we can't have practical uh, ways to move forward uh, and protect ourselves yet uh, from from uh, cybersecurity risks. So uh, I'd like to tee you the, each of you up for um, helping me move forward from that quote. Right? Like let's let's give you uh, some space to give me say say five suggestions uh, for people um, to improve or protect improve their security posture or protect themselves from cybersecurity attacks uh, in this manufacturing and logistics um, space. I'll, we'll start with uh, uh, Dr. Powell. Okay. All right. Um, I'll give a couple in Islam, please. Um, I would say my number one is your employees are your biggest asset. Train them. Train your employees not to click on any links. You know, if somebody calls, rushes something, verify that as who it is or the email. Verify it's not a spoofing email. Next thing you know, you're losing all your intellectual property. And if you think it is um, some malicious, report it immediately. Do not, you know, delete it or anything. Report it and let them take care of it. Uh, second is install and activate software and hardware firewalls. Make sure your firewalls are up to date, accurate. Make sure you're blocking sites that people don't need to go to. Um, I mean, sadly, that's easier said than done because some people still try to find ways to get to them. And make sure your wireless networking and your routers are, you know, do best practice on them. Find out who's on your network, what's what and what it's doing on your network, where it's going. Know what's go, what, who, who and what is whatever they're doing on your network. Uh, with that, Islam, I'm going to go ahead and jump over and let you have yeah, to add to uh, those lists, uh, I would, uh, of course, Michael gave some important security controls. I would step back, uh, look at it a bit more broadly and start uh, from the asset inventory side. Every company should have a very good asset inventory. If you don't know what you have, you cannot protect them, right? And as part of that, you also need to identify and classify your assets into high value and, you know, those... and understand the dependency of those assets into your mission. So those are absolutely the starting point from an overall design, architecture and design perspective. And once you have that, then I will go for a segmentation uh, uh, aspect, security segmentation of your uh, environment, uh, including separation of IT and OT and even additional infrastructure uh, systems. And then uh, looking into some of the uh, security controls, I would definitely implement MFA, multi-factor authentication, right? That's a low-hanging fruit. The bang for the buck is tremendous, uh, implementing MFA. Uh, similarly to that, uh, privilege access management as well as remote access management solutions, right? Every company needs those. Those are all part of the access control mechanism. MFA, privileged access management, uh, remote access. And once you have this, then you also need a, a monitoring solutions, detection. Okay. And now it is not just enough to deploy by these assets and deploy it and say we are done. Often this is the mistake many companies make. I have done consulting work for many of the companies in the mining, manufacturing, oil and gas. One of the uh, trends uh, generally is, okay, we have the money, let's buy. You know, I, the yeah. right approach from my perspective is 
look from how do you operationalize? Okay, if you cannot operationalize an asset in a holistic security monitoring perspective, don't buy that. Why do you spend the money wasted, right? So start from the end point. How are we going to operationalize this particular security capability? And then start from there and work backwards. And also not a piecemeal security monitoring solution. They need to be integrated holistically. And sometimes you need a seam for a small companies. It's sometimes difficult to uh, uh, buy a full-fledged seam because it's expensive. But there are some of the uh, uh, open uh, software solutions available, particularly uh, cybersecurity infrastructure security agency, CISA. They are working on uh, some of the open source based monitoring solution that can collect data, aggregate it uh, using open software solutions. So I think that's the one I would uh, uh, conclude my recommendation with. Okay? Start with the asset inventory, include identifying, classifying high value assets, then go for a full secure segmentation of your environment. Then the access control, including MFA, privilege access management and remote access. And then the, the uh, uh, detection uh, aspect, right? Detection of your environment, monitoring and detection of your environment, and then aggregate the data into a seam or a, you know, a company product or an open software product. This is a uh, fantastic advice. It feels very um, iterative, something that these, all these, what you just said, just builds upon each other. Uh, and it feels like something that uh, folks can take uh, and see themselves in, in, at, in at, at any different level and literally start today. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that everybody needs to go spend a ton of money. The inventory, uh, just literally inventorying all your assets uh, does not, shouldn't cost you, you know, millions of dollars kind of thing. It's, it's something that you could just go take and do right now. And there's a famous saying, right? With this, I will close of my side. A journey of a thousand miles starts with a single step. So right. cybersecurity is a journey. It is not a one-time thing. Whatever budget you can afford, keep spending that every year and improve uh, on what you have built before. Gentlemen, this was great. Uh, really insightful advice, uh, as Turley has said, very practical uh, things you shared with us today, which we greatly appreciate. Uh, for the folks in our audience who want to learn more about what you're doing, continue to track what you're doing, uh, make them make available of themselves uh, the, the research and the papers, where can they go to get more of this? Um, there is going to be a link. I'm going to give you a link with a QR codes, how you connect to NCCOE, and also a separate link of how you can connect directly to the manufacturing sector and reach out to us if you have any emails, questions, and there's normally a pretty quick response. That's fantastic. And we'll put those in the uh, show notes and the show description. Um, I want to thank you both for spending time with us this afternoon. This was fantastic. Thank you so much for all you're doing to advance the thinking and the, and the work in this critically important space. Thank, Thank you, you very, very much, much for having the opportunity for having us also uh, exposing the work uh, we have produced to the general audience. Thank you. Our pleasure. Well, that was certainly an interesting conversation. Uh, I am really impressed with the amount of knowledge those gentlemen just brought to our conversation today. They're fantastic. I mean, the the work they do is uh, just super useful. Very, um, you know, I was like a broken record, but uh, this is it's practical. It's pragmatic. It's it's all these things that that just feel just right in the in the security space for me.
Why do you think it is that a pragmatic approach feels so refreshing and different, right? Like why, why were we so taken by that? Like, what is it that we've come to think about cybersecurity that would make us feel, oh, that's refreshing and different? Yeah. I mean, I think, um, it can be very complex to sort of plug all the, you know, possible conceivable security holes. And so, uh, it tends to be that, um, many, many people, um, talking about security, they, they've, they've thought about all of the different ways that things could go wrong. And there are, uh, there are plenty. Um, and it is difficult to often prioritize things and you, you tend to have, um, just a really, really complicated, uh, solution. And if you get the rabbit hole is quite deep, I would say. And then secondly, I, I think, you know, uh, it's a scary, uh, it's a scary landscape out there. And so I, I think, no one, no one goes into this intending to sort of be become, you know, driving driving the fear that people tend to have in this space. But but it happens, and uh, and I think um, this approach is uh, helps to be like no, like there's some there's some real um, low cost uh, ways that you can you can make a huge uh, difference. It's kind of like the uh, you don't need to have the um, the best bike lock, uh, on the, on the rack, but you need to not be the worst. Uh, and, uh, and, and I think, I think that's, that's a, that's an important thought. I love that. It's like the, you don't have to outrun the bear. You just have to outrun your friend. Yeah. 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 That's, that's better. That's a great metaphor. Yeah. Uh, connected to that, one of our clients, I was talking to them two, maybe four weeks ago, uh, and one of their competitors suffered a ransomware attack. Um, and it really kind of put a bit of the fear into them. And uh, it's a, you don't want to say there's any good tragedy, but it definitely forced them to take a closer look at what procedures they had in place, what they were doing, um, try to see what they could learn about where the attack originated from and see if they had the same vulnerabilities. Those types of experiences can definitely shock you into paying a bit closer attention. And it's nice to know that there is something like these resources um, that can point you towards best practices of what you should be looking at and what standard you should be holding yourself to. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the the story they told uh, about the the group sh sort of sharing their the Colonial Pipeline uh, folks uh, sh sharing their failures, right? Like, you know, like, hey, this is the, this is the issue. This is what happened. Here's all the here's all the information. Um, that type of uh, of openness is really what leads to an overall improvement in our 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 security posture at large. Uh, and if you're thinking at this that sort of like national level national security. Uh, in a way that these guys uh, missed really, really are trying to at least think about um, it's uh, isolation uh, and uh, closed off, uh, you know, um, thinking is, is what's going to prevent that from really succeeding. Yeah. Yeah. And I think if we just think about our ambition in terms of trying to help uh, manufacturers take the steps towards greater automation and insight into their operations through connected devices. Um, I suppose half the time the concern is charging ahead without considering the implications and, and, and challenges. And half the time it's almost paralysis because I don't know if I want to open that box. I don't know if I want to open myself up to all of those concerns. And I think the way uh, the 
these organizations, the NCCOE, are helping to make it accessible, as you've said, and practical, is hopefully alleviating some of that friction that's stopping small and medium-sized manufacturers from getting on this journey. Absolutely. I mean, you, you do uh, you do see a fear of um, uh, of cybersecurity issues being one of the leading reasons that people don't take bolder steps in, into technology. Uh, and so anything that can be uh, can help people sort of go boldly uh, is uh, feels right. Well, I certainly feel smarter uh, having had the uh, conversation today. Uh, I feel like we'll be able to weave more of these cybersecurity topics into our conversations going forward, which I, I hope people will find useful because uh, I think it's important. I know you do too. Yep, absolutely, 100%. All right, well, let's, let's transition to some lighter fare, shall we? Um, it's time for our regular segment. What did we ask generative AI this week? Um, so I've offered to let you have first crack if you'd like. Yeah, so for our listeners, um, this is going to be a bit of an interesting segment because, first off, uh, Jason started with, I think I've got a good one. Uh, and so I was like, oh, <laughs> all right. Uh, and I didn't know where to go with that. Um, and then additionally, the other reason this is going to be interesting is uh, I'm veering away from the sort of chat GBT world this week. Uh, and I am going into uh, a thing that's challenging for a podcast. Uh, and I'm going to go towards mid-journey. Uh, so... Mm. Uh, I've, I've been a Midjourney uh, subscriber, and if you don't know what Midjourney is, Midjourney is, uh, is more of a uh, image creator. Um, uh, t- takes text, uh, a description of an image, and creates one for you. Uh, and so, uh, because my favorite thing to do with generative AI is to take shots at Jason, uh, it, <laughs> I I gave it a simple prompt of give me uh, an image of a podcast host for an Industry 4.0 podcast. And I was just like, let's see if that basic prompt with no additional modifiers paints a clear picture of Jason. And sure enough, um, it, it it absolutely did. Uh, let's let's see if I can share my screen at least for Jason, uh, and I'll try and describe it. Um, uh, I'll, try, I'll do my best to, to verbally sort of walk us through things. Um, here we go. So. Uh, the the image that we got back is uh, is absolutely of a guy with the with Jason's haircut, uh, and so that's the best part is he's uh, <laughs> he's got Jason's hair color, uh, pretty much his exact skin tone. His glasses are pretty close to on the mark. Um, uh, <laughs> big old headphones. They might be the same same make and model. Uh, it's it's brilliant. Uh, he's wearing a, a, a different colored shirt, and that's a just complete failure on Mid Journey's part. Uh, they should know. Jason and all 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 professional uh, podcast hosts for Industry 4.0 podcasts wear white white shirts. Um, yes, the so. best part, <laughs> the best part of it is uh, is that the microphone is basically uh, a, a cobble together, you know, microphone arm and robot arm. They were like, okay, <laughs> Industry 4.0. Yep, it's just uh, just let's just merge these things. And uh, he's clearly on a factory floor recording a podcast, which is, um, they, they nailed it. I just love it. I love the idea in the future. I'll have a robot co-host holding my microphone for me. Moving around so you're not moving back and forth between your mic like I do. Oh, brilliant. So this was not mine, but I feel the need to add this little anecdote. Um, I normally handle the craft projects with the kids for school. 
uh, but I was traveling this weekend, and so my lovely wife had to step in and make something penguin related with my third grader. And I got a text message from her in the afternoon that simply said, I'm in penguin hell. And so I popped into Dolly and I gave it that prompt, show me penguin hell. I just sent that back to her as the text message response. Uh, <laughs> I was like, really, yes. is this is this what it looks like? This kind of, so just zombie penguins and swirls and all sorts of crazy stuff. Love it. So, I love it. yeah, the image gen is the image gen is great. All right, so we're gonna get serious for a second, uh-huh. okay? Um, there's somebody very important to this podcast who I just don't think we've done nearly enough of a good job recognizing, and of course, I mean our producer Greg Webb. Absolutely. Now, Turley, don't tell Greg, but I think we should get him a little holiday present as a sign of our appreciation. Okay. Now I'll really admit I'm a good gift giver. I'm thoughtful, uh, but I tend to like belabor these decisions and at buying things at the last minute, just because I've agonized over the choice for so long. So I thought that chat GPT could help me get to my solution faster. Mm-hmm. So, so I said, um, I'd like to give a holiday gift to a coworker who's really had a big hand in my success this year. And I'm looking for suggestions. Okay. Greg loves his dog. Greg is very fashionable. He can rock a pocket square like noise business and has a very strong shoe game. Greg Great also too. Did you did you mention the haircut? I didn't mention the haircut. That's a oh, good point good. though. All right, I'll have to rerun it. Greg also really loves cars, and Greg's family is really important to him. What are some recommendations for a holiday gift I should give? So ChatGPT reminded me that um, you know. We should take his interests into account, and some of the some of the recommendations are really quite good. Um, a custom dog, dog. My Long Island just came out. A custom. <laughs> my Long Island is showing. Uh, a custom dog portrait. Uh, since Greg loves his dog, a custom portrait of his furry friend could be a heartwarming personal gift. Uh, they suggested fashion accessories like high quality leather belt or a subscription to a fashion accessory box. Um, a car enthusiast gift, um, a gift certificate for a luxury car driving experience, um, family-oriented gifts, uh, a board game designed for his family and game nights. Maybe we get you working on that. I'm on it. Um, or some other type of, of gift certificate or charitable donation. I was like, oh, that's all great. I was like, but, you know, I've been successful this year, but I haven't been that successful. I'm I asked if I, Lamborghini. <laughs> if I want to spend less than $20, what would be the best gift for Greg? Uh, so fashionable socks uh, was was on the list. Uh, a car magazine subscription was, was on the list there. Um, but the one that I think I'm going to go for, they recommended a DIY pocket square. They said, if you're crafty, you can make a pocket square. And there's plenty of tutorials online. So I think that a custom Jason pocket square for Greg uh, is something that we're going to have to tee up for this year. But listen, I, I want you to get, I want you to get, I wouldn't tell him. I would never tell, don't him. tell, don't tell Greg, like no, no, we no. have to don't tell him. So what you need to do is get the the picture of penguin hell printed on fabric and make him a pocket square. That's just penguin hell. Uh, and no one else will get it, but it'll be, it'll be our little thing. We cracked it, man. We have solved it. We have tied it all together. The, all the threads of this episode have just like, psh- can't wait. Oh, Perfectly man. come up. All, well, right. all the all the pictures of it will be in the uh, in the description notes of some future episode uh, with the pictures of Greg embarrassed. 
could we do a two side pocket square, like the portrait of me on one side and the penguin hell on the other? I think that's <laughs> multi-purpose that way. Depending on how he's feeling, he'd go with either side sticking out of his 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 suit pocket. It would be a pretty great move. I, I'll pay right. double for it. All right. We've handled some very serious topics today, and we've had some real silliness here at the end. So I think that should be our cue to wrap it up. Uh, I want to thank all of our listeners for joining us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe so you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes. Our ambition is to continue to cover the important topics and trends shaping industrial innovation from manufacturing to supply chain. And we will see you next time on The Modern Industrialist.